This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Hello and welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, all through the lens of disability. I'm your host, Nicole, and I am thrilled to have you here. So, I teased this a little bit in a previous episode when talking about a couple of films by the director, Alfred Hitchcock, saying that, well, I'm going to be doing perhaps another episode talking about another director. And here we are. Uh, The examination table is chock full of body squick, ooey gooey goodness. And that is all courtesy of David Cronenberg. We've talked about a couple of his films specifically on the pod Crash and Existence or Existence. But I thought it was time to do a bit of an even deeper dive on the man and his work. Now, body horror is a top-tier subgenre for me. I've hit on that a little bit. And it's really part of how um, body horror in particular connects to disability and the complex relationships that we and society have with our bodies. And what it means when we start deconstructing our own little flesh sacks. Now, David's son, Brandon, has also entered the horror chat and is in often conversation about how his films continue on the body horror path. But I think we'll discuss in that doing so, he perhaps hits a few different chords So I think it's a really interesting conversation and conversation indeed, because you really can't dig into someone like Cronenberg alone. And so I am very, very thrilled to have here with me, Zach Long. Hi, Zach. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad Uh, to be here. This should be fun. Yes, absolutely. So Zach was introduced to me uh, via dear friend and man behind the boards, Joe, here at Anatomy of a Scream and one of the co-hosts of the oft-mentioned around these parts, Horror Queers, and said, well, if you're going to do an episode talking about Cronenberg, you really need to bring on Zach. So, Zach, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I used to run scriptophobic.ca, which really dug into the screenwriting aspects of and story aspects of horror films. Uh, during that, I was working on a book about Cronenberg that fell through, but was a lot of fun. I had to watch all of his films over and over and over, so that helped. And nowadays, I'm releasing my writing for free on writeindarkness.ca. So if you like horror fiction, check that out. It's got nothing to do with film, though, so. (laughs) 
but yeah, I'm I'm really excited for this. Any chance to talk about Cronenberg is the one that I have to take. Uh, I I totally understand. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your interest in Cronenberg and kind of like how how you kind of discovered his films and what really kind of clicked with you? That is a wonderful question, which I am at a loss to answer. I don't know what the first film of his I would have saw was. Probably The Fly, just because of how uh, its proliferation into the the consciousness of the genre at the time. Because I I would have encountered him probably 2004, 2005. And that so he had already gone through the majority of the horror films that people consider classics. So I know that once I found him, I, I remember just consuming a bunch. And the one that really connected with me, uh, what well, several have now, but at the time and continuously to now, Videodrome has just been such a perfect film to me. Uh, and it, it it really gets into all of the gooeyness of him and <laughs> The fact that even though he's a gooey filmmaker, his films are also clearly, uh, they all clearly state some sort of thesis statement that the goo is in service of. And so that was being able to identify that and see that actually really opened up horror as a genre to me in a way. So I kind of owe him that. Wow. I love that. I love that Cronenberg is a director that really seems to have served as like that gateway to you to, you know, it resonated and then you continue to explore the genre. Um, I feel like Cronenberg is sometimes a bit of a tricky director to serve in that role just because of the, you said, the gooiness, the ickiness of it it's an acquired taste and so i i i love that i think that's so so interesting yeah it also it also helped that he is a canadian director and most of the directors <laughs> that i was encountering at that time were either american or japanese and so it was it was really great to see somebody from my country and be like oh wait we make horror movies too <laughs> Yeah, I, and, I had nobody told me. <laughs> well, and we'll talk a little bit about the, you know, the Canadian treasure that is David Cronenberg, because he definitely has a Canadian flavor to especially his early films. Um, and I, I do find that, you know, worth discussion. But yeah, I think that is, that's also really interesting that um you know finding a director from your home country to be like hey yeah i actually this is actually really cool this is interesting i connect with this um that's very cool you you mentioned uh that he's a canadian treasure and i think something that's kind of fun to point out is the fact that when he began canada absolutely reviled him yes. and that when shivers came out uh his first actual theatrical release film he had done art house shorts before that but mm -hmm. when shivers came out the newspaper 
uh, like basically was like, is this what you want Canada spending its tax dollars on? Because Canada helped to fund it. And his landlord kicked him and his family out of their home because he didn't want to rent to pornographers. <laughs> <laughs> and so Canada, it, Canada took a little while to warm up and realize he was a treasure. Yeah. And, you know, it happens. I think that that, especially when we look at some of the themes and ideas of, you know, what he's exploring in his films, you know, he was pushing, I think, some really interesting boundaries. He's going into um, some new spots that I think probably were, um, you know, different and probably, um, you know, had people kind of, you know, it did to use a term that I don't really like all that much, but, you know, kind of clutching the pearls to be like, oh, no. This man is, is you know, putting sex uh, in this context, and and it's too much. So yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit about that. But before, and and we are going to talk about shivers. But one of the things that in you know doing some reading and some exploration of Cronenberg, because you know one of the and I don't. To be honest, I may have mentioned this in um, the existence and or crash episodes, maybe even going back to the first episode, Cronenberg is kind of the reason that this podcast exists, because I wrote a piece uh, for the school talking about The Fly and how it was a really, um, I think, very, very important film for me and that connect to disability and um and kind of digging deep and finding those connections so um I like I said I, I think it's something that's really important for uh I think just in context of the films but um in in going back and in reading a lot about Cronenberg and hearing other people talk about him, reading what other people have to say about him, they often break his filmography into eras or into kind of sections. And everyone does this kind of in different ways. They kind of break things up um, along different timelines. And these can be uh, based on a number of kind of different factors everything from you know what kind of budgets he was working with um the kind of studio play that was happening at that time so you know the the big budget Cronenbergs or people will often break it down too in terms of like what are the themes and ideas that he's really discussing in the films and so because everyone kind of looks at this slightly different um, from a different perspective, I was wondering, Zach, if you wanted to kind of share how you look at kind of the spance of his filmography, how you break this up. I think it, it might be useful context as we start discussing a few of his specific films. Certainly. And why I do break it up myself, I also want to stress the these are not strong borders because every aspect actually bleeds into each other. 
on that. The first the first uh, separation I would make is after Crimes of the Future, the 1970 short film, uh, not the one that he did in uh, 2022. Um, but so after those short films, you kind of you he moves into doing proper theatrical releases. Then you have you have the two errors, the two main errors that people sort of look at, which is up on from shivers in 75 to existence in 99 and then they kind of look at the rest as something separate i i personally kind of i look at from shivers through to scanners he's he's getting his funding through canada and he's filming in canada with a bunch of canadian actors so you see a lot of the same faces and you see a lot of the same environments so that they have a very cohesive feeling then he moves into America and we get Videodrome, Dead Zone, The Fly. Mm -hmm. uh, that that to me is kind of like, I maybe call it 80s part one because, <laughs> or mm -hmm. call it just his American horror phase because after that, uh, he moves into Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch, M. Butterfly and Crash, which are all these dramas. And they all are dramas that have certainly the dark tinge and they all every one of them focuses in some way upon destructive bodies similar to his horror that from the, the earlier half of the 80s mm -hmm. uh then though then you move into existence which almost kind of stands alone it it feels to me to me it 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 it, it blends kind of you could have put existence anywhere it's kind of a weird one of his cuz it feels like 80s cronenberg showed up at the end of the 90s and just dropped a film off there it has aspects of his uh dramas but it's more like videodrome and scanners than anything else uh with that though you move into spider which is kind of the last of his lower budgety like like his less mainstream ones in a way uh and spider and a history of violence which are both kind of tied together uh with that he moves he moves into doing these bigger what people call it his mainstream phase but he he is working with larger studios and getting bigger releases but also they kind of start to blend together at that point for a bit until with map of the stars in 2014 he drops off mm -hmm. so in that phase it's a little hard because it does it starts out kind of strong feeling like, oh, this is a Cronenberg that's defining himself. And then it fizzles out by the last couple. And it's, it seems like he kind of got tired until he came back. But so the, the main ones, though, that I will do would be the his uh, short films era, his Canada, America, drama, mainstream. So I would kind of split it into five. But again, even though that is how I kind of would look at it, you could argue that, well, you could split it based on budget into a couple different ones. You could yeah. split it based on genre. A lot of people simply just do the two split between um, history of violence and shivers. Like, mm -hmm. So it, it it's a very interesting filmography because of the way it sort of doubles back at points, too, where... Like you have something like Existence, which again, it just comes out in the middle in the, in the end of the nineties, but it's between these two eras, but it feels like something he would have made ten years before. And I think I think probably the thing that really cements it all together it was 2022's Crimes of the Future, because 
that that just goes back and it pulls stuff from every one of those and it and it kind of reminds you okay this has all been one man and all every lesson from every one of these films is in this man yeah and we'll we'll touch on that i think a little bit towards the end but it is interesting that his last i don't want to say his last film in that it's his last film it's yeah, he has one that's in that's that's supposed to be being worked on now. So exactly, no, like the man is still working. It's fine, but his last released film is the same title as one of his first shorts. So there's kind of like this, like you said, it's a film that is very unique. I think in pulling in, so, like, and you phrased it perfectly, so many different elements of kind of a career-long um, exploration of all of these different things that we'll probably touch on. So um, let's so let's start talking a little bit about, you know, some of the earlier films of Cronenberg. Uh, now, you mentioned the shorts, and my understanding is that there are kind of four shorts that fall in here you've got uh i think two of his i guess feature shorts which would be crimes of the future and stereo um and then he had two uh 70 millimeter shorts as well yeah those don't often get talked about because frankly speaking they feel like what they are, the first films of an amateur who's learning what he's doing. Uh, when you get to, but the fact that he only did those two before quickly moving into the feature shorts, which get a little more attention, still not a lot, but mm -hmm. um, he, he quickly learned what he was doing and moved into those. And those start with the ideas that will continue throughout his career, though, the lack of money means he's quite limited and a lot of what he's doing in those films is telling you rather than showing you. So he's talking about epidemics of plague and he's talking about viruses and he's talking about telepathic powers and all these things that he'll then show later when he has the money appear first in those feature shorts. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, a, a very key point there is that, you know, Again, a thing that makes Cronenberg very interesting to discuss is that, you know, there is even, you know, across like all of these different eras, and I loved how you kind of broke them down um, of his work, there is still, I think, multiple threads that pull through. And I think it makes it really interesting um, to really delve into his work um, and, and to talk about him because I think you know, um, we, you know, there's so many conversations that we can have about, you know, separating an artist and their art, but I think that artists do put elements of themselves into their work, um, and it's always interesting to see what these themes are, because it seems to be really, you know, something that is important and, um, you know, really pressing um as a theme and an idea for a director but let's let's talk a little bit about his first theatrical release shivers 
And I, this was, I had desperately tried to go back and rewatch as many Cronenberg films as possible before this record. There's a few that I wasn't able to get to, but Shivers was one I was because this was one I haven't, um, it's one that I, I, my, my opinion varies so much on it just based on when I've watched it. Um, it's, it's just kind of an evolving thing for me, but, um, let's talk about Shivers. It came out in 1975, his first, uh, theatrical release. What do you think of this film? Uh, Shivers is one of my favorites of his, both for its, it's a lower budget film. And so it has that sort of gritty quality that you would also get out of, um, scanners has that as well i find but it's the gritty quality is something that i like here because i'm always fascinated when a artist is able to do a good job of a low budget and still make it interesting to look at and i find shivers is almost certainly always interesting to look at because it either the shots are interesting or when the shots are flat there's something crazy happening in them mm-hmm. uh and i think I think that the idea of the sexually transmitted parasite at the core of it is a fascinating idea. We've used that similar ideas in body horror films like, um, oh, there's one of the contracted, I think it's called, mm-hmm. with the zombie STD and things like that couldn't exist without shivers. And even the the title shivers is actually, I think it's probably its weakest element. The original... the the original title that he got talked out of was Orgy of the Blood Parasites, which yep. is a fun title and highlights the uh, the focus on parasites and something wrong with the body right there. But so does they uh, they come from within, which I think they come from within as a title is a very is almost a thesis statement of Cronenberg's career, like themes as a whole. No, that's. I am so glad that you mentioned the alternate titles because you're, I think, spot on in that Shivers just doesn't really seem, it just seems kind of almost like that placeholder. It, it's um, it, it's a real, it's, it's it, to me, it feels like a producer really wanted to hedge their bets and play it safe. Like they heard Orgy of the Blood Parasites and they just tried to picture what the what everybody would think when they saw it and what the newspapers would say. And they're like, okay, this is already, this film is already intense. Let's, let's dial that back. And that maybe with a softer name, some they'll take it easier on us. And they did not. (laughs) Yeah, no, Uh, the reviews were pretty brutal on this film. Um, Yeah. And I mean, yeah, Shivers, I think is just one of those, you know, one word titles that is, I think, something that is not only, you know, throw it up on a marquee, it can be used a lot of ways in different reviews. Does Shivers have kind of this sexual connect? Yeah, you could make that leap as well. But yeah, it does feel very, I think, um, disconnected, I think, from the content of the film so like you said this is a film that is about a 
parasite that is sexually transmitted. And we watch basically as it spreads through this apartment complex. And essentially the film opens with the doctor, Dr. Hobbs, who has essentially created, patented this parasite uh, going in and murdering patient zero, but it's already spread. That um, was so that scene too. It's one of the, if you've ever watched Reservoir Dogs, and when you start Reservoir Dogs and you, you have the talk around the table, everything's calm, and then it cuts into an actual a scene where it's like, here's what the actual effects of a gunshot are. And it's one of the most horrific things ever. This is also one of those scenes where when you cut into it and you're like, you just cut into them already a mid fight and you don't know what's going to happen between yeah. it is it is absolutely shocking and it and it's in the 1975 like people were not ready for that even I tried to show my child well my kid <laughs> I should say not child that makes them sound a little too young would they they've seen Videodrome and loved that but that they got to that scene early in shivers and was like I'm out nope yeah it's it is shockingly I think Again, visceral. It's something that you, it's it's what makes Cronenberg's use of, you know, this wiki body horse so compelling is that you feel it. You, it's it's very intense, um, and yeah, he, this doctor is going in. There's this altercation. Um, the patient Annabelle is killed and you know getting the parasite out of the abdomen pour some acid in there is very multi-level uh, a tiramisu of ick but it's very I think uh, it it's such an interesting way to start the film with laying out the intensity of what is happening without really giving us the context. So we understand that we begin to understand that there's this parasite and we learn a little bit more about why this parasite was patented, created. So it's, there's kind of two factors here. One is that it's a parasite that can basically replace failing organs um you know it's uh, if a kidney is failing the parasite will do the work of the kidney and you know if it needs to drink a little bit of blood in the meantime to strive and thrive that's all right because we make plenty that's kind of the argument here but Go ahead. Well, I was going to say it's a miracle of science, which is one of the one of another key of his films is that science in his films and that when when we talk about like the mad scientist character or like science gone wrong as a genre and mm -hmm. that Cronenberg fits in there. But Cronenberg seems to have a belief that there are there are with positive changes you can get these but there's always going to be some dark underside to it and and just to briefly return to that opening scene because i think that also has a very or not opening scene but the opening scene with the doctor 
uh the way it's shot in that when it when it's coming in and he's attacking the girl it's very the camera's a little frantic but once it gets to the operation once it gets to the medical part of it the mm -hmm. camera locks down and stays still because the medical side of it is as important to the body horror side uh as he goes forward when we films like dead ringers later and that he's going to really highlight just exactly how terrifying uh a doctor with a scalpel truly is and you don't need to intensify it through film work he understands that it is terrifying on its own exactly exactly that's that's a great way to phrase it and so you know you do have this foundation of medical advancement um medical science kind of being an underpinning here there's progress being made you know this this is a medical miracle right you can have this parasite and if you have the system failures you can still live however there is this dark side and this is where we get into this aggression this uh aggressive sexuality and we see as the parasite spreads throughout the building through sexual contact you see more and more sexual assaults um you know the film ends with you know basically the complex's residents leaving such a good ending. You know, yeah with big smiles on their face and this uh you know the news bulletin saying record sexual assaults and they're just you know that now they're going out to uh right. to kind of continue um the smiles on their faces i think also kind of another great point to highlight future in his career is that once you are infected with the parasite once you, once you are are at that level and that you are happy with it you're okay it's only horror for those who haven't been brought along yet and so with mm -hmm. the with the with the bodies that Cronenberg destroys and that there's almost a euphoria built into it too and that which is I don't know what to say about that except that it's a fascinating thing that continues through it I don't know whether I agree with him with that theme or not but I it's in many of his films like look at the fly with him changing and that it's yep. it is something that he deifies why gina davis's character is terrified of it so there's always this dichotomy between the infected and the non-infected exactly exactly and especially because you have that sexual element right like sex is good um and yet it results in in this absolutely destructive thing and you know, this came out at a time where, you know, we have to look at kind of what societal views around sexuality were. Um, you know, this is 1975. So <laughs> I think when we look at Cronenberg's films and especially how he talks about sexuality, I think that is something that he he does i think interject and it's very interesting to kind of take that away especially when you mentioned 
this film was really, really panned when it came out. Um, just in like skimming through uh, the Wikipedia, I love that they have a breakdown of the reviews. Um, <laughs> they that, were bad. They were bad. Yeah, they absolutely undeservedly so. Like they, they not only are they do they take offense with the content, like the content of the film, but a lot of them just come and attack him as a human being as well. Like it, yeah, it is shocking just how much vitriol there was over this film. And I think the main reason for that was if you look at Canada's film history on that, Canada was actually very late to start producing films on that. And when we did start, uh, we, we were entirely focused on documentaries because we wanted to be seen as prestigious. We didn't want to be like these silly Americans with their shows. So like the first the first real Canadian horror film, I think, is called uh, it's The Mask or The Skull. One of those. I think The Mask, but I might be wrong. And it's 1963. So it's only 12 years or so before this than that. There, there was one other before, but it's been lost to history. So we nobody really talks about it. It was a werewolf film. But you only have horror for 12 years and then so it's still something that the americans are doing and it's something that's seen as dirty and gross and you're talking about sexuality and you're showing gore and you're showing these things and and the end of it is so bloody nihilistic too mm -hmm. and that and so it, there's a it, there's a response against it not just as it uh, being a film but as it representing essentially everything that is wrong with film and how and how Canada is taking the wrong influence from America <laughs> right and that's I'm so I'm so glad that you put that perspective on it because you know in the 70s I think there especially with a lot of horror films that were coming out that were you know really wanting to comment on societal topics um you know even looking at films of Wes Craven um last house on the left the hills have eyes um these are kind of statement films but people were really rebuffed um and really attacked the content as being exploitative um without i think understanding which i think now we can go back and look and say oh i i understand a different kind of contextual situation here I understand what some of the commentary is. I understand what the director wanted to say. I can appreciate the technical skill that was also being implemented here. Because, you know, you talk, you mentioned when we started talking about Shivers, how it has kind of this very, I don't want to say like, for some, for some reason, the, the phrase like lo-fi quality comes to me um lo-fi quality i you know what i think that actually is a, that's a great term for it yeah it it feels it feels very approachable in that way but i think there's a lot of skill here i love that the whole setup at the very beginning where we're meeting this couple they're being shown apartments um it's there's something really i think interesting and technical in how he's creating this 
space that we're going to be inhabiting for a bit so have you yeah. ever seen the film high rise came out yes. the high rise directly there's a lot of moments in high rise that are direct reflections of shivers and you can tell he chose to put the camera where he did they like they're made they're they're very interesting in that way and even, so even the space and the setup at the beginning that you're praising like that's actually even gone on to influence other filmmakers oh absolutely um and one other thing to i think mention here and you talked about other films you know as we're talking about some other films that it you know kind of uh mentions and you talked about a couple of uh films that deal kind of with this you know kind of the sexually transmitted aspect of it but even in films like i think cabin fever and a film that we have covered here on the pod it follows i think deal with some similar ideas that if you really want to i think shred things apart there are some nods um to uh to shivers in some ways and i really appreciate um i think one of the things that i really appreciated in watching shivers now is that there seems to be a build of the action you know it's not one of those films where the <laughs> the contagion happens right away the symptoms uh present right away there's this very kind of doom to it and wondering how far and and how these things will present and the ability to you know again not it's we're talking about an std an std this is something that you're not going to be able to to see with the naked eye and so there's just this element to it that i think is really uh interesting and i think flows in to i think you know cabin fever and it follows are two very different films which i think have elements of that i think it speaks to i think kind of a an importance to an approach that shippers had i, th I think that one of the reasons that this film builds doom so well and some of his other films do as well but i think for different reasons is you were again talking about that opening section and in that Yes, we do have this one crazy event going on with the doctor and his patient he's killing. But most mm -hmm. of what we are doing is establishing just characters who live here and seeing what life is like. And it's almost like a it's almost like a Stephen King novel in a way where you're first getting to meet the town before. And, you know, something dark's going to happen, but you need to meet these characters and start to get a sense of them first and see them as not just characters interacting with a problem such as um in the fly jeff goldblum or video drones max wren both of them are very much uh outside of any community in shivers we have a community that we learn that we meet first and then we know that we're building to their destruction so the whole time as each piece is getting layered on we know that it's going to impact so much more than say the characters in his other film who we know it's going to impact them and their bodies but they also prove themselves to be like we like jeff goldblum more than we like max wren but even jeff goldblum proves troublesome by the end so we're okay with him being uh destroyed by the time we get there we but with shivers everybody is good until they're infected nobody is a bad person really except, except the doctor but i mean he he's gone pretty early 
Yeah. And again, I think we're we're presented with an idea of, you know, with that, what we talked about with the medical science and advancement of, well, we we get it. Like, this is an amazing thing. It's progress um, that can save lives and there's value to this, but we haven't explored what all of the, the fallout may be. Um, so I think it's definitely a film. Yes, it was uh, heavily panned when it came out, but I think is one of those that has gotten some reassessment and reappraisal in recent times. And I definitely hope that continues. And, um, you know, to kind of close things up uh, in talking about Shivers specifically, an interesting thing is this is a film produced by Ivan Reitman. It, this this is a fun era of Ivan Reitman too, because it's like Shivers and Cannibal Girls, and you, you look yeah. at them and you're like, oh, okay, I get it, like just your typical B movie guy. And then a decade later, he's making every kid's favorite series for the next like ten years, and then people are dressing up in things he invented. Exactly, you know, it's it's wild. It's truly, truly wild. Um, so and <laughs> so you kind of described the early phase of uh, Cronenberg, you know, starting here and going through to Scanners. Is there anything else, any other films in this particular pocket that you want to mention? Or say you can kind of see a direct through line of different ideas, themes that he was working through. So if you look at his next one, Rabbit, which I find to be one of his least interesting act, ultimately, it's kind of a just a zombie film with a body horror element to it. Uh, it, fe- it feels close enough to shivers that it doesn't like it kind of almost feels like he doesn't have an idea for what to do next. And so he's doing this. He has an interesting idea of how they get there and shivers. It was because of surgery and, or, or because of the invention of a new or a parasite that could be a new organ in the rabbit. It's because of an invention of a new type of plastic surgery that could help. But I find out of these, the brood and scanners to be far more interesting. The brood because of the themes of maternity that run through it and how, how, uh, the, your emotions can result in physical aberration and you, you can create cause your body to revolt against itself with taken to an extreme obviously in his films but that's something that i'm always aware of because if i stress myself out too much or something my mind goes on too much of a rampage with my depression suddenly i'm getting sores in my mouth and stuff and that because i start getting canker sores because i'm too stressed so i've seen my own body revolt because of my mind so the brood and scanners both dealing with those ideas is fun uh and with the scanners i think you see the first little bit of oh he couldn't he could do action too he kind of actually likes it like it's low budget and it's not as exciting as say a history of violence later or even existence will be mm-hmm. but you you start to see like oh okay like he 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 likes his horror stuff and he still likes his his like ideas but he's also like no let's let's shoot some guns and let's go have some fun as well which you don't see in too much of the next 10 years of his work yeah 
No, I think that's a I think that's a really good point there. Rabbit is an interesting film. You know, it rustles some feathers because it stars Marilyn Chambers, who and her, the way well, it ends with her is it, it is brilliant in my opinion. It might be his his best ending because of how dark it is. But boy, howdy, does it ever infuriate? Yeah. Oh, um, it's like a Night of the Living Dead ending. Yeah, it's it's a really really um i think interesting film like you mentioned it deals with plastic surgery um a woman who has been in an accident and again medical advancements great <laughs> some of the fallout not so great um so but marilyn chambers also known for being an adult film star also the ivory soap uh lady in advertisements so um oh i did not know that one yeah um i believe i believe i'm correct in that um yeah because i think that when she had made that transition and was doing adult films people were like well but she she was the ivory she was the ivory snow uh woman like that's how 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 is this so um but, uh, so, you know, again, dealing with a lot of these kind of sexual undertones as well in Rabid. Um, One thing that um, I should actually know is that Rabbit finds its origins, I want to say it's Crimes of the Future, uh, but it might have been stereo because one of those uh, explicitly involved the uh, the science that's behind it was explicitly about skin and dermatology. And so mm. it's it's almost a reworking of an earlier theme. But by the time he gets to the reworking, he's like, well, it's going to be zombies now. and We're going to have some fun. Like, I want to take people down into the underground of Montreal and fire off some squibs. Yeah. No, absolutely. So I think that this, so interestingly enough, in kind of prepping for this episode, one of the things that I wanted to kind of give space for is to talk about um, our favorite Cronenberg films. Um, and I feel like we're getting into favorites that now fall into some of the progressing eras now you mentioned the brood and this is one of my favorites and this is one that has kind of been on a perhaps cover here on the pod in a much more robust way i really really like uh this film a lot and i would say that it's um i think in terms of like the gore level certainly not like the most um intense uh until, until though there's one image in that that i think stands way above the rest like yeah you know you're you're exactly <laughs> right um but i think it's and, and and i think that's kind of the thing it's not until you get towards the end um where it's just kind of like ooh it's a lot we'll never forget it yeah um but it deals with this woman and she's going through a divorce you have this family and 
you're starting to see essentially what it comes down to as this uh, psychosomatic representation um, of illness uh, dealing with, you know, like you said, when we are dealing with depression or other types of kind of mental health issues, these can present in physical symptoms as well. These things go hand in hand. I've mentioned before, I'm not, you know, this is not a, a podcast that goes into kind of the mental health realm just because that's not an expertise. Um, but, you know, we've made that link um, in a lot of different ways. And so you start to see basically what appear as tumors um, appear. And we then uh, begin to see that these are not necessarily tumors, but are basically their own beings. And so we see kind of a very only, only for Nora though only yeah, for the only... one character. There's a bunch of one of the things that's probably the most terrifying in that to me is mm -hmm. that there is in order to get to her the ideal science project essentially the one that's yeah. going to really help the doctor out. There is a wake of ruined people behind him, and right so he he's very explicitly just basically discarding patients that don't live up to his treatment and that part is maybe the most terrifying aspect of the brood to me no absolutely and that's such a good point we do see other patients so again we get a little bit of that mad doctor mad scientist trope um that we all love uh running through here but yes um for nora it she is literally giving birth um to like these products of her rage um and it's for me what is really interesting to just think about um kind of in relation to that is kind of two different things um one is that these these children that she spawns these, um, I don't know, rage babies, um, are, they, they are small. They, I, I think the way that, uh, I've seen different reviews in different kind of places talk about it is, you know, dwarf, a uh, child, it's, you know, it does look a little bit different, but has, you know, a human appearance. So it's not truly kind of like this creature-esque. It is. They, they are slightly different. Like they don't have a belly button because they never had an umbilical cord. And there are right. a few, few clear changes. But otherwise, they, ju they just look kind of like kids. Like kids, yeah. Yeah. And so there's this interesting thing that I always think about is and we've talked a little bit about this in different episodes the nature of, of hereditary illness and what we pass down to two children do you know the uh the the backstory to why cronenberg wrote this film sure uh so cronenberg at the time him and his wife were going through quite a bad divorce and his wife tried to abscond with their child to go join a cult and he hasn't spoken to her since and 
So in this, he's writing about a, a the main character is a man who's going through struggles with his wife. Because even though Nora is the most important character to the story, she's kept out of it quite a bit. She's impacting it, but we're following him as he as he's trying to deal with. He thinks that she is abusing their daughter. And then by the end of the film, you get an image that tells us the daughters manifest in the same things. So he's been he uses the idea that trauma creates a physical response and it's passed down and that so then the daughter has trauma from what happens in the third act and Nora has trauma based on the relationship she had with her parents which is a vital part of the story and so it, it it's very much linking not like the, there's the hereditary illness aspect as well as how trauma's passed down uh, mm-hmm. And it's very much taken from his fears of what is going to happen to my daughter having done this, like, is so. Yeah, no, and that's, he, I, I, I think, had talked about this being, because this was also the year that Kramer versus Kramer came out. And he said that this is kind of his version of yeah. <laughs> Kramer versus Kramer. But I think that one of the things that's also... um interesting um about this is obviously there's an interpretation of this that can be you know seen as present just uh kind of misogynistic right um however i think a counter argument is that you know this is a woman that is you know being manipulated and used by a male scientist um what i mean 100 percent. as handsome as oliver reed is he is such a bad dude in that film exactly and i think that there is there is this kind of i i I think compassion that is given um in the film that i i think sometimes gets a little bit overlooked a compassion to nola um in in so i i but i totally understand that perspective uh as well but uh i really like this movie and i think also another kind and, and you just mentioned it too with the ending of the film you know one of our our final shots here is uh nola's <coughs> Uh, Nola, Nola's daughter, uh, Candace, um, having the same kind of bumps on her skin. And to me, having uh, recently watched uh, the movie Relic, uh, this really stuck with me in a completely different way um, as well. Because the film Relic, I don't know if you're familiar. Is that with it. the Australian one with the um, the grandmother? Yes. Okay. Oh, the ending of that's so beautiful. Yeah, it is. It's so lovely and dark and sad. Um, but and and I think there's a similar theme here of you know the the dark, uh, like lesion that we see on the daughter in relic um you know and and seeing that kind of represented here as well it's again kind of that passed down trauma um because now candace is dealing with 
these uh the impacts of what she's had to experience and this is how it's going to start manifesting it's a really interesting film and again i think speaks to just this uh really textured way that cronenberg plays with these ideas and themes i would agree with that yep excellent so film yeah (laughs) i i love it um the other film and i've mentioned this a lot one of my all-time just top tier films of cronenberg's is the fly now the fly i think to this day and you may be able to correct me if i'm wrong um i believe to this day is his most commercially successful film yeah, it was his highest gross, gross, and I'm, I think by uh, quite a big margin. Yes, and I think that it's because it is very much part of kind of the fabric of horror now. You know, whenever you see kind of these lists of, you know, top horror films, top horror moments, you will not be surprised to see The Fly um, entering. Uh, pretty high on this list and I think it you know it's obviously uh Cronenberg working with a different level of budget um a different kind of studio interplay and release efforts behind that but you also have Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis who were a couple at the time um Gina Davis wasn't necessarily a name. Uh, She had been in a few things, a few notable things, but, you know, she wasn't the Gina Davis we know, love, and revere now. Um, But Jeff Goldblum was certainly a name, and a name in horror remakes because he had been in Invasions of the Body Snatchers. (laughs) Um, But you have a little bit of this you know, star quality here, and it's based on a short sci-fi story and an original 50s film, and Cronenberg does what Cronenberg does um, in taking the source material and making it something just tragic, unique, and fascinating. What are your thoughts on The Fly? Well, The Fly is quite the fun movie. I actually, though, tend to put it lower on my Cronenberg list, but higher on like my horror in general list. If I, not that I really keep many lists, honestly, mm-hmm. but it's one of those ones where I I think within the filmography of Cronenberg is almost like it, it just hits so many of all the things that we have seen him do and it that it doesn't stand out in that regard but what it does do is it hits them so perfectly like it is it is the most it is probably the most perfect example of uh, what a cronenberg film can be uh because it's it's beautifully shot it's beautifully acted they got great special effects in it uh it is based on it is based on an idea that's not his but he had wrote it and so you see a lot of yeah what he's in because one of the things that it's worth noting a big uh, we didn't talk about this when we were splitting up Cronenberg films but 
a large portion of the films right up until existence he he wrote every one of his films except for the dead zone and m butterfly then mm -hmm. once he comes to spider and his modern he 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 actually doesn't write most of those most of those are already written they're scripts that he's just taken so at during this period you like the fly is really kind of it's cronenberg almost almost paired away from all the other experimental stuff to like the perfect core you got the body horror you have you have this romance that's going to end tragically you have uh, a mad scientist but you also you have a character who's going through a fall because in videodrome and in the brood both of those lead characters are brought into like like they're brought into ruin by the end like even though in the brood uh our hero gets away with his kid and that he's still just had to do awful things and that with his bare hands and live with that so he's ruined in videodrome the character's ruined by the end of the fly the character's ruined and we've been on this journey and so i think it really works well for that way and it's it, it's quite fun because Cronenberg, it, it makes sense that he would go to something from that that was a short story first in that because he takes more influence from that than from the original movie. Mm -hmm. And that makes sense. You see it with like, I mean, one of my favorite of his film is Naked Lunch, where he's directly showing these this literary interest he has because when he was going to college and that he thought he was going to be a writer and then ended up being a director... So he's always kind of thought he was going to try to be a Nabokov and just ended up creating body horror instead. And the, yeah, the fly kind of meshes both. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things, obviously there's a lot of setup that gets paid off, but there's a lot of these themes that really resonate through the entirety of the film in a way that it's just so cohesive and clear that there, there's such intention behind it that even though it's not the most original idea, it's just perfected in the Cronenbergian way. Yeah, no, and that's, I think, such great context in terms of, you know, like you said, Cronenberg did so much um, in terms of, we talk about him as a director, but, you know, his writing and the way that he crafts these stories, even stories that do have a different kind of source material at this time, I think is really masterful. A couple of things, and I've talked a little bit about this, you know, earlier in terms of like connecting with this film. I think this is also a film where we see, you know, you hit on some of the recurring themes and ideas, mad scientists and transformation. But I think here we also see a character that is really, that we see really struggle with their relationship to their changing body. We see kind of an evolution um, of, you know, as these changes are happening, almost kind of like a, like, okay, this is kind of cool. This is interesting. What does this mean? A little bit of fear to, we get to a very tragic ending. And I think that that's something, you know, I've talked about with disability. There can be a very complex relationship that we have with our bodies because our bodies, they don't look a certain way. They may not function in a certain way, we form complex relationships around that. Um, I think it's something that, you know, we spend, I think, probably lifetimes delving into and, and trying to to understand and piece apart and kind of come to terms with. But I do think that there's that 
there's a tone of that in this film that really, I think, sticks with me. There's also then that sequence where uh, Ronnie is giving birth to a larva. And we talked a little bit about this idea of, you know, the hereditary nature of disease. Um, you know, Cronenberg, I think, also approached this specific story and the transformation ideas, you know, in the context of like cancer, an individual that's dealing with cancer and the way that a body can break down in that process. I think there's also this really beautiful element to the relationship between Ronnie and Seth in that we begin to see how these changes impact people in our sphere, our loved ones. So I think there's just a lot of, like, it is as sexual as a lot of Cronenberg's uh, content can be. A lot of people really look at this film as being indicative of, like, a relationship film in that way. It It is absolutely one of the few that stands out in his filmography for the the role how much of a how much the role of the romance impacts it and that because you have romance show up in like crash for example and but a more time of that is spent to the relationship to the idea of crashing as a sexual fetish rather than to the idea of how these two people get along that is an Mm -hmm. element but the only other film that really out out of this period of his at least the only other film that really gets that much into it would be m butterfly mm-hmm. uh, and which m butterfly i would say go takes it one step even above the fly but sure. the fly is the one that is definitely most traditional to it like the the love story in it there's no there's all the ups and downs but there's no like twist like m butterfly is all about the fact that there's a twist to what's happening and that but when with the fly the relationship you see is so it's so interesting the way that they're just normal people essentially (laughs) in a Cronenberg film people aren't often that normal so the fact that it's these two normal people and like you do see the ups and downs of their relationship to such a level like I I would put it as a horror romance if I would if I had to give it two sub uh, like two genres because I think that it if you're into romance and you can deal with horror, there's enough there that you'll really like that film. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that with the romance, obviously you have a real life couple. And so th- they were able to kind of, I think, put that put that on screen. And Davis wasn't simply casted because she was Cole Bloom's girlfriend. I think she got the audition for that. But she went in and did what Gina Davis does, which is blow people away. They're like, wow. (laughs) She's so good. Yeah, she's amazing. And they're like, she's great. This is an absolute grand slam. Um, So I, I, we talk a lot about, I think, Goldblum's performance here because it is just a top tier um, because you get all of these, I think, layers of a character that isn't just a one note kind of mad scientist. And then we see, uh, you know, kind of a an evolution of, you know, the downfall, um, him, you know, essentially getting his comeuppance because uh, he fucked around and found out the science. Um, instead... I think you get some really interesting layers to a character. You see the way that 
these relationships in his life, the way that he is kind of interacting with colleagues and interacts with Ronnie. I think it's all, it's all really interesting and just makes for a great film. And, you know, I think it's a standout because it's also a film, you know, there's a lot of people that will say, oh, this is when a director sold out. You know, this is their big budget or their big film and, you know, it's not that good. But this is a film that I don't think that people can really say that. It's like, no, Cronenberg took a budget and put a stamp on it and made something that I think is really, really, really special and great. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, if you wanted to argue that he had sold out, the, the more, not that I agree with it, but the more uh justifiable film to do it for would be the dead zone right before because that was the first time he didn't write his own film so you could be you could argue about that but again i also think he puts a stamp on it to a degree where it doesn't matter he still is the person in charge yeah and the dead zone is another i think interesting example because you have it's Cronenberg not writing his own source material, but that source material comes from Stephen King, who is Stephen King. And so to be able to take, you know, King is so distinct in his writing. It's what has kind of made him who he is. He has a very distinct approach and style. And to be able to be a director and really take that and create a story that feels true to the source material, but also unique to your style and be able to really put yourself in there, I think, again, speaks to, to skill. And there's the filmography around the King. I'll put in a very gentle plug for the Losers Club podcast, which I've mentioned here before. It's a great podcast. And they do very deep dives, not only into King's writing, but also cover um, the filmography as well. There are directors that I think just really have a connection. And so it's, yeah, The Dead Zone is a really, I think, interesting film in that regard as well so the fly and the brood are two films very they're maybe echoing slightly different eras but i think there's obviously again that thread and multiple threads that can come through but zach let's talk about some of your favorite cronenberg films and maybe touch on a couple of different points in his career that maybe we've only touched on lightly yeah well i would like to then uh my favorites are naked lunch and video drum and i would also like to touch on he did a episode of the tv show friday friday the 13th the series that i think specifically for this podcast is very interesting and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it yes but uh starting with videodrome i love this movie it is such a it speaks to all the weird aspects of myself because i'm an absolute weirdo so it's the perfect film for me and it's got just what an idea and that it deals with a signal which can create a tumor which then gives you visions though it is proposed that the visions have created the tumor and so you never actually get an answer about that mm -hmm. and there's a movement from our reality into this uh, video reality there's a lot of body horror imagery but the core idea of a tumor that is impacting your ability to perceive reality is absolutely terrifying to me um i've lived through my mother dealing with like my mother had cancer but then she also got a brain tumor that they can't get rid of 
and so have to deal with that and there's all this like specifically stuff related to how the physical the physical brain like our how your physical body when it comes to the brain can affect your your interpretation of reality really speaks to me in a way that's terrifying but also because of the great special effects and because of the acting and even the cinematography of it it's so fun and that it's it manages to be fun while also scaring the absolute crap out of me yeah i i absolutely love that one i think it's i i it's one that is rather accessible but it if you can do but it's next to shivers it might be his most explicitly sexual uh so it's one that i could see a lot of people having a hard time with there yeah Um, go ahead no videodrome i think is also you know again going back to how people slice up Cronenberg's eras in his filmography it's also one of those films I think sometimes lumped in with scanners that you're starting to see you know a Cronenberg name really stamped yeah absolutely 100% like that and and it's the first one where he goes over and he's got a slightly bigger budget now and that's like it 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 looks more professional and it's starting to be like we know who this is now and it, it's essentially it is um it is to cronenberg what x was to ty west where it's like okay we under we know who this is now we know what this means yeah that's a that's a really interesting comparison i hadn't really thought about that i i hadn't really I hadn't really made a connect between, you know, Videodrome and kind of this particular spot of Cronenberg's career and Ty West because I I think that's such a such a valid kind of comparison there. And I think one of Videodrome, I actually just recently saw this one in theaters. Oh, I am more jealous than I've ever been in my life. Um, this was playing at a local AFI and I it it's it's an incredible film and again dealing with very familiar territory but I think like you said there's a certain polish to it um that's really intriguing um there I think is a much more specific conversation happening about our emerging and growing relationship with technology um which that that itself will continue like existence that you've already covered is is that just to the nth degree like Mm -hmm. videodrome the the conversation that videodrome has is 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 very fascinating to me because it predicts that we're going to live in a future where everybody's going to have a video name and going to have their own that uh their own like video personality and their own it's it's describing the internet and social media is what it's doing in that it it predicts that but it doesn't manage to make the leap from video and vhs into like an internet yeah and i think just the way that we interact with like you said social media and that just the way that we interact with these virtual um how we interact in a virtual space um and so yeah it's it's definitely i think a standout 
and definitely one of the films again when you you know are scanning list of like the top Cronenberg films you're gonna see Videodrome time and time again because I think this is really a big kind of name maker for him and oh sorry oh no go ahead oh I was gonna say another aspect uh that I'll only briefly touch on because it kind of probably belongs in a different podcast more than this because it's not about disability in the least. But the Videodrome to me is a very interesting film when you look at it from an anti-fascist point of view. Mm-hmm. Because the the idea at it is that because of the permissiveness of sex and violence on TV, which the film points out has not altered people in that it's not it's not his sexual or violent programming that is altering people but rather a group of people a group of these men who argue that using turn uh, using sexualized terms around the erection specifically they're talking about how it softens people and how it it makes it and they we they need to stand hard and erect like <laughs> it is these terms that are showing this repressed sexuality in themselves and that regarded by as they outlook at these other people and they've introduced this signal that causes these tumors and they're going to use it to weaponize the media or they're not the media itself but weaponize the transmission of the media and if you make that leap to look at, at videodrome speaking not about vhs but speaking about the internet one of the important aspects that it shows is that the technology, it's not just about how we interact in the digital spaces, but it's about how those digital spaces bleed into the real world and cause violence there. And that is something that we are explicitly dealing with, (laughs) I mean, it's a problem currently, so. Yeah, no, I think that this is definitely, I think a lot of the themes that you can take out from many of his films are ones that are either evergreen, ones that I think as a society you just never are pervasive and continuous or they're stating something that we're now seeing today and seem more relevant and I think prescient today you mentioned kind of this repression as well and I think that that's also something that we see a lot in Cronenberg's work and and a lot of the stuff that we've already talked about not just from a sexual place but obviously that's an element you know going back to shivers this is kind of a a tangent of this of the parasite um and one of the things that you know was behind his creation was that it you know uh dr hobbs felt that we as a species uh were becoming too intellectual and too divorced from our more base sexual impulses um and so i think you have this parasite that counters that i think speaks to uh this i you know wanting to make some commentary on repression and i think you know you can say the same thing um in in that context with videodrome Videodrome, speaking of repression, uh, is also, it was explicitly, he had in mind critics in that, in, in censors when writing it. So the the people who are trying to 
stop the the transmission of just these images that they con consider to be obscene are the ones who are then like doing the violence and causing it to happen and, and that it's the people it's essentially saying like oh you you're complaining about this and yet you're funding these wars type type argument where it's like showing the sort of two-facedness of censorship yes absolutely absolutely now the other film that you mentioned as being your favorite and to me this is a very i think rough spot for me in cronenberg's filmography it's a film i mentioned that i i waver with shivers on if i really basically i waver on if i really really am digging it or if i'm just kind of digging it um i still think it's pretty it's pretty great but naked lunch is just a rough one for me and so i was really excited to see you list this as one of your favorites because talk to me about <laughs> about it like why why does naked lunch um stand out to you and again this is a film that is based on source material that is, it not... is nominally uh it is nominally an adaptation in 1959's yep. naked lunch by uh, william s burroughs but in in actuality it mixes elements from naked lunch but it's more so adapting burroughs life yep uh it looks it looks at it looks at, and it's also taken the fact that it starts with uh our main character our burroughs stand in play or be uh, working as a uh, exterminator that's also taken from the sh short story collection that Burroughs did so it's taken all of these different elements of Burroughs work to tell the story of Burroughs life and specifically it chose to tell the story of Burroughs life as regards the the death of um oh my god I just blanked on her name it's Joan something it was his wife who he uh shot in the head yeah by accident by accident according to multiple sources and, and nobody will ever know for sure but it it does seem by all by all accounts that i've read and i've been going through the beats like crazy this last year uh it does seem like it was an accident right coming out of alcoholism and drug abuse which was something that he dealt with a lot and as somebody who has been a drug addict in life before there's a lot that i take away with from this movie in that regard there's a lot i take away from dealing with trauma and that specifically trauma relating to a relationship and, and violence within that mm -hmm. there is um there's a lot i take away even from a creativity point of view there's a part in there's a part in late in the film where our main character, he's accidentally killed his wife. He's fled to this place that's they were supposed to shoot overseas. They couldn't do it. So they made their own location, which has this weird otherworldly feel. It doesn't feel like any play, real place, but a mixture of uh, Tangiers and, and with America in a way. And he he comes back from there to... Uh, New York, where he runs into our analogs for um, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac run into him. And he's apparent he doesn't remember sending them these manuscripts that he's been writing. And he shows his typewriter to Allen Ginsberg's character or the character representing him. And 
we see from from like base instead of seeing through the perspective of our character who's been going in and out of reality it turns out we see from the perspective of an observer that his writing kit is just a bag full of drugs and that moment speaks to me a lot but more specifically a moment that 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 follows it which i plan to get tattoo of someday is there's a line that he says where it's like when when you finish finish the the manuscript but then come back to us like take this project you're going to work on this thing you're doing it's going to hurt and you have to go through it in order to deal with it and what he's really talking about is processing everything that's happened this death the trauma his his role to it but then come back to us after don't let it destroy you and take you away but then when you get to the end of the film depending on how you interpret the final moment it's either destroyed him or it's turned him back to the beginning like he he you could argue you could argue that the final moment is essentially him having to relive his trauma to show okay i can get over this i'm going to relive it i'm going to look it in the face and then be done with it and move on to this next thing or you can see it as him going to be stuck in an endless cycle repeating his trauma and so the fact that there's a uh there's sort of a you, you it, it's ambiguous enough that you can interpret it each way it means every time i watch it my opinion on what happened changes based on where I am in life. So it's been a movie that's continually shifting every time I watch it. No, and I I think it is important, and, and you laid this out, that so Naked Lunch is one of those books that falls into the unfilmable. Yes, um, and, and the, the, the name I was forgetting was Joan, Joan Vollmer. Yep. And she was connected to, you know, she was very much part of that beat generation as well and so and i think she had a relationship with kerouac specifically uh, yeah i believe i believe that in the film it very it explicitly shows her and kerouac having a a essentially an open relationship yeah. wow and yeah. part of part of what distinguished the beats was there's was a lot of this open sexuality and embrace of the body and embrace of drugs and uh and also a seeking for a for some sort of spiritual meaning a spiritual quest which if you read Kerouac is fail every single book of his is how that quest fails and it doesn't materialize yeah what Cronenberg decided to do and to take this quote-unquote unfilmable book was to really make it kind of this meta film and make it an exploration of the author's life which i find really interesting again i struggle with this film but i do find it really interesting in that regard because i think again it's an interesting way to form our relationship with our protagonist yeah i can see it is a hard film for most of the people I've shown it to, and that because you you have to interact with like you have to get on board with the logic that it sets out, and yeah. its logic is absolutely sporadic, and it makes sense because that you're talking about Burroughs who invented the uh, the cut up tech, well popularized the cut up technique, invented certain aspects to it, and has a whole books where like you try reading them and it's just madness i i love it with all my heart but it's absolute madness i feel schizophrenic by the time i'm finished reading one of those books so it it it, it captures that really well but that's already something that is very hard to sell somebody on if they have no idea of what it, of what they're going to be experiencing uh, i think you're still muted there 
Thank you. I think it is a very unexpected um, film. I think especially for folks who are coming in expecting a certain kind of... Uh, <laughs> it's not that, you know, Cronenberg doesn't get experimental with narrative and approach and all of that, but I think if this is definitely, I think, a different kind of film and a bit of an outlier in that regard. So I, I understand why, obviously I understand why people can struggle with it because I struggle with it, but I really do think it's such a fascinating film. And I mean, I still think it's, it's quite good. Um, and, and maybe it's a film that, you know, it's one of Cronenberg's film that I have seen by far the least. Um, and so maybe if it, you know, if it's a film that I would continue to revisit a little bit, get myself more familiar and used to, I think kind of that narrative landscape, I would form a different relationship with it. It, it, it should also, I gotta also th throw out a recommend. I have to also give praise to the cast because it's got Peter Weller, Judy Davis, Ian Holm, Julian Sands, Roy Schneider. Like it is just packed with such. Every time you see them pop, like one of the new guy characters pop up, you're like, oh, him, he's back. Oh, great. Because they got, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Robert A. Silverman, who he was in, he, he's in, um, shivers and he's in uh the brood in the brood in the brood he's <laughs> the guy that has the uh tumors on his neck that they meet yep. in the hotel room uh who also um he he also is the, one of the main characters in that episode of friday the 13th that cronenberg directed uh, he he in that episode he is uh dying of cancer himself or what seems to be cancer and it's mm -hmm. and that film is specifically about whether or not if you had the power, if you had the ability to take your sickness and hand it to somebody else, would you do that? Yeah. And I find that such an interesting question because um it's a different question than what I think those of us that are living with an illness, chronic condition, disability often get asked. We get asked the question of you know, if you could wake up tomorrow and just not have your your condition, um, would you? If you could just take a pill and it would be gone. And that's such a, you know, depending um, on some factors, that's a really complicated question. But people ask it without really, I think, thinking of those various factors and in, in ways that it can hit. And so taking that question and kind of turning it a bit and saying, you know, if you take your your condition, your illness, and gift it to someone else, would you? And if you if you think about everything we've been saying, that's the perfect question for Cronenberg to be asking, because he it's essentially here's this miracle cure, but mm -hmm. here's this dark side to it. And that, and now instead of instead of having invented the cure and then discovering the dark side, it's saying, "Hey, here's both of them. What do you do?" Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think it's a perfect example of how throughout all of these pieces, 
um, of Cronenberg's filmography, there's just these little nuggets that we see continually popping up. Um, yeah, Naked Lunch is an interesting one. Um, now shifting gears a little bit because we, I think we've hit on, um, a lot of kind of core films, uh, leading up here, but you had mentioned when we were going back and forth about things that we wanted to make sure to hit on with Cronenberg, you were like, we should probably talk about Spider and how this is kind of now entering into a different phase of Cronenberg's work. A lot of people look at Spider, they'll either place the one of the major uh, markers for Demacade, uh, bloody hell, <laughs> they'll, they'll place one of the markers for where uh, Cronenberg shifts gears in his career as either being at Spider in 2002 or a history of violence in, uh, in um, 2005. And both of those films, I think, are very interesting because they show that this shift is in some ways arbitrary than that. It, Spider is a film about a man who's suffering from schizophrenia, and it, it deals with the sickness of the mind. So it's still dealing with the, the themes of sickness in the body that Cronenberg plays with. It's just not dealing with the squelchy, icky part of the body. And meanwhile, a history of violence, which does have elements of violence within it, is also also deals with aspects of the mind and memory being against you. And so when you when you take into account those aspects and how important they are to those narratives, they're not just throwaway things. They're what the whole narrative of these films are based around. You can the argument can be made that both of these still represent a form of body horror. Yes, that's, yeah, and I think one of the things also worth noting here is we've talked about how Cronenberg has done films that have been based on, um, you know, kind of other source material, but Cronenberg always had his hand in the script. Um, so it's not that his... His writing was non-existent. Um, there's a couple of films you mentioned. Um, I think it was in Butterfly and um, The Dead Zone, where I don't think he has a credit of writing. But Spider is also now entering into a, I think, a longer block of films where he doesn't have kind of the the hands-on with the script. No, Spider is Spider was an adaptation of a novel, which mm -hmm. I forget who wrote it, but it's very good. I I've read it. I highly recommend it. Um, and he would he would be involved in a couple like a history of violence is also an adaptation yeah. of a graphic novel, um, and Cosmopolis, which is one of the rare ones he actually did write in that era, is also uh, a adaptation of a uh, Don DeLelio, uh, uh I've only ever seen it written, so I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. But uh, one of his books, and but the, there is a bit, there's a big, there is a big difference in some of these films. You do feel the lack of Cronenberg, but if you look into the production of, say, Eastern Promises, you see that he is still playing such a huge role in 
in what is happening on the screen because in that film he chose yeah. instead of using guns they'd use knives which means that the writing then has to be changed to reflect that so he he isn't directly writing in that but he's still taking a active part in the shaping of the narrative and how things will play out so it, it's this interesting thing where there is less of Cronenberg in these films, especially as you go towards map, Maps to, to the Stars, where he then takes a break, because I think even he realized, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I You sense that he's having less fun as he goes there, and there's less of him in each. So it, it starts out in Spider in a History of Violence and Eastern Promises, even. You see a lot of him in there, especially... Spider is so much of him in there because he was also producing it. But yeah, as he moves away from writing them, you you do see there. There's a lot. A lot of the things we talk about start to just fall out. You don't get your mad scientists, and that though you could argue, well, maybe he picked a dangerous method because you're dealing in a way with mad scientists, but not the same kind. It's not a Cronenbergian mad scientist by a long stretch. Yeah, but still, mad scientists. To be sure, I think, um, you know, depending on who you talk to, like these are, you know, you're with uh, Dangerous Method, you're talking about Freud and Young, and, you know, these are fathers of uh, kind of exploration of the mind, psychiatry and psychology. So um, <laughs> I think those certainly apply but one thing i also found interesting about spider is because we're noting this as kind of a shift um in his career um and and i think you beautifully pointed out that you know this is still very cronenberg but has lost i you know there's there's pieces that we've noted as being really, you know, kind of pieces of the foundation of his work up until this point that aren't there um, or aren't as kind of strongly embedded. And, but one thing that I, that really stuck out to me is that this movie got, you know, pretty, pretty solid reviews and you know because i think we often think of uh you know when a director makes a change sometimes it's due to okay well you know they wanted to make a change because something wasn't hitting with them you know they were starting to kind of lose steam and it's reflective in the response that we're seeing from reviews and just feedback in general but that doesn't really strike me as the case here yeah i don't i don't think it his change had to do with with anything about how he was perceived or how his films were doing i i think and i, and I might be i might be making this up but i'm pretty sure there's an interview where he talked about like he, he was at a point when he needed some money and in order to get money you have to go with the bigger films and that and the bigger fi yeah. the bigger the film is the less willing a studio is going to be to gamble on those types of elements 
And so they want to they want to put in less body horror stuff, more like a history of violence. Let's be an action movie instead. And that Eastern Promises, we're doing a gangster movie. And that there's not they're taking out those elements that are the most the most likely to alienate potential ticket buyers because they're 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 specifically looking to earn money rather than make a statement. Yeah, exactly, and. I think to that, uh, I think, and this is also a film that had a $10 million budget and had about half that in box office um, at 5.8. So, yeah, this is, like you said, this is really, you're, <laughs> you're seeing kind of shifts for, I think, really interesting and complex reasons that... I think speak more to an an industry demands and just a director that's like, oh, this is what this is what you got to do. Um, so I, um, I I don't know. I just found that really really interesting because I mean I think in terms of like the the more I think, um pointed body horror this film doesn't i think go to i think the links that some of his previous work does um which again i think starts to note a, a slight shift um but yeah it's such an an interesting entry i think in the filmography yeah it's a it's one of the one of his least seen films because it's it can be very hard to find a copy of on that i don't know if that still is true but it has been true throughout the last couple decades uh but if you can get a copy of it i highly recommend watching spider yeah um for sure and like i said um you know uh just having gone through a few reviews and, and looking at things people dug it um it's not that you know it was panned um or or one of those those films that you know just takes a long time to build up any kind of of audience per se i think it was just a weird little catch-all type situation um but we now enter into i think tell me if i'm wrong of, of how you described it at the beginning kind of the drama portion yeah the drama portion i i I put the drama portion a little earlier and that i put the drama portion as dead ringers oh yeah yep, yep. crash you're right and that this this is the like the more big budget era where in my opinion, it's frankly just far less interesting than anything else he does until you get to Crimes of the Future and where Crimes of the Future feels like he's commenting on his career as well as where body horror has gone since his career uh, or since since he's stopped, essentially. But the films before that feel to me very much, they're very much um, like gun for hire type films. Yeah. And that's an interesting way to put it. Um in doing some reading, someone had described this as his 
Vigo um, era because he has. Yes, he does. He, he does starts... love working with Vigo. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, mean, they clearly have a lot of fun together. They do. And I mean, yeah, it, the films, again, don't have, I think, a, a particular Cronenberg flavor that we may be used to. But, you know, Eastern Promises, History of Violence. They're good films. They're just they're just very boring when it comes to a discussion when you're talking about Cronenberg. You lead up to this and then you, like you lead up to the cliff and then you kind of fall off it at the end. <laughs> yes. But I would say that both films, I think especially, you know, if you want to and and you know, thinking about kind of gateway Cronenberg, if you are a Cronenberg fan and you really love the icky gooey squicky uh body for business and you want to take you know maybe someone who is hesitant to you know or wants to kind of broach slowly um this i think could be a good starting place now there you know there are scenes in these films that are <laughs> just outstanding. Make um, a bathhouse fight. Oh. Hands down. That is that is one of the even though it comes out of this era where it doesn't feel like he has much like like where he, he kind of they don't feel like Cronenberg films, that is still one of the best scenes out of the two thousands, period. It, it is. I uh it is incredible. It, it also shows how fearless Vigo is when he's working with uh, Cronenberg. Because when he comes back to work with him on Crimes of the Future, there's a scene where he was actually, like, in real life, was physically sick and feeling awful, but they mm -hmm. shot anyway because he wanted to capture that and put it into the movie. And you don't do that if you're making a movie for someone you don't trust. Exactly. Exactly. And like you said, I think... Cronenberg did work with a lot of repeat players, um, but he's also like not one of those directors that we necessarily like link to a specific collaboration. Now, I say that, and I think one of the one hundred percent cemented collaborations that Cronenberg has throughout his career would be Howard Shore. Yes, um, oh his so good his themes are yeah perfect. howard so howard shore is like the man behind the music of cronenberg uh for sure i think there's only i want to say just a few films that he wasn't involved in um so yeah um but you know having now i think changed things up a little bit and now has kind of this relationship with Vigo and Vigo is known for being just an actor who's willing to just go whole hog um and love it like these films again are not going to probably satiate the whorehound um but the performances are incredible um the cinematography and the technical aspects of the film are outstanding. <laughs> they look stunning. Um, 
you mentioned Howard Shore, and now you're mentioning the cinematography in this late period. I think uh, if we if we want to talk about collaborations, we have to mention Mark Irwin then. Yeah. Mark Irwin was cinematographer on Fast Company, The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, Dead Zone, The Fly. Like he he did a lot of work together through that era that defines what a Cronenberg film is. So a lot of what a Cronenberg film looks like is uh, a collaboration between Cronenberg and Mark Irwin. No, absolutely. And I think, again, when you're talking about a look and a feel of a particular filmmaker's work, it usually is in partnership with a cinematographer that they have this shared vision um, together and a trust. So, yeah, I mean, even if there's not uh, an on-screen kind of collaboration that we that Cronenberg to this point has, uh, you know, established firmly, there's certainly, um, you know, Irwin and Shore on kind of the back end um, of things behind the scenes that he's, uh, you know, really collaborated with to kind of, I think, create that Cronenberg world to his films um in both sound and appearance um so to kind of close things up because we have been talking for a yeah. bit here and like i was I gonna said, suggest that maybe we do brandon cronenberg a different time yeah <laughs> um i mean i think it it is worth saying like with brandon cronenberg his son who has now three features under his belt, antiviral, uh, possessor, and just released this year, uh, Infinity Pool. Um, you see a filmmaker, I think, that is taking kind of guidance, leadership, ideas um, from his dad, but has kind of interpreted and put his own unique spin to to some of the things that we've talked about where Cronenberg seems really interested. Uh, I think in, in one of the ways that you, you kind of described it. Um, and, and I liked was kind of, you know, the internal and the external, how external world environment things impact the internal and Cronenberg seems to be, uh, Brandon seems to be living in a, kind of different space while using some of those same mechanisms a lot of his films deal with specifically you know identity i um, if, if somebody was a fan of david cronenberg and wanted to branch into brandon cronenberg i think uh, a great starting place is actually his short film which was titled please speak continuously and describe your experiences as they come to you yep great title in my opinion but definitely for a short film title not a not a feature film title you don't fit that on a marquee no but it is it's only 10 minutes but it kind it, it deals with a patient with a brain implant it deals with ideas of reality like different realities different shift in things and one of the key key things that you have just mentioned was how much identity features into his and it is it is explicitly about both the 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 his dad's take on science and where scariness comes from that and his own take on how uh, identity plays into the relationship of the science and in it, it it makes the uh the the role of the 
experimented on uh, the individual who was experimented on it takes on a much larger role in Cronen or in Brandon Cronenberg's films than in his dad's for sure yeah and I think that's really delightful to see I I really like Brandon's films and I think you know what makes them so fascinating is the fact that you know there is that similarity in the use of body horror um because body horror is part of Brandon's work but again using it to really comment in a different way I find that really compelling and so I'm always really excited to see what he's gonna come up with next I really liked Infinity Pool and again a film that really discusses identity how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us and what that means um so it's it's interesting to see someone who is obviously very uh influenced by the work of his dad but has taken it to communicate in his own language i'm really excited about what i saw i don't know if it this is true or not but i had saw that uh, Brandon's next project is supposed to be an adaptation of a J.G. Ballard film, or yes. sorry, novel. Uh, and I read that novel recently. It was, I, I believe, Super Canes or Super Cans. And um, and what's very interesting to me is Identity Pool or sorry, Infinity Pool already feels like it's like a light adaptation of that story. So yep. like, if, if I, I feel like if Infinity Pool is something that a person enjoys then this next project is going to be fantastic and again someone who's really stretching their legs i think in finding a voice um and in finding different ways to uh, to kind of work within you know i think his own material but finding material that speaks to him and and using it as kind of a canvas but also also in Ballard was the source material behind Crash, so it's yep. a, it's a, somebody that his father adapted as well. So you get to see two generations adapting the same writer's work. That's yeah. that's you don't get to uh, examine that in, in many areas. Like I don't, I can't think of any other example where you could see a a father and their offspring, or a parent and their offspring explore the same thing so many years later, at quite the same, like to the same degree. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure someone will come up with an example of, like, uh, a parent and offspring. They, they're definitely they're, they got to be out there, but it's not, it, it takes years in order to set one up. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Um, so yeah, his work is definitely something interesting, and again, uh, especially with antiviral, um, is a film that is, you know, probably one that will be covered here uh, down the line because I really like it. I think there's some really interesting tie-ins to uh, disability health and all of that. So um, we mentioned, and we can kind of close out in talking just briefly on David Cronenberg's recent film, uh, crimes of the future, not to be confused with one of his first films, Crimes of the Future. And we see him return back to kind of home base. Yeah, it's that one is, I mean, it, it, again, when you, it's a return to home base, but also by bringing all the things that he has learned throughout. For example, he brings Vigo back. And yep. 
uh, he also he also there's many shots that are explicitly recreated in shots from his earlier films. Uh, there's a lot of moments of because of the fact that Vigo is a his character is an artist within this community that he do does sort of body horror esque art. He's able to use this uh, to explicitly comment about art that he was seeing and art within our world in the body horror. Uh, one one uh, interpretation of there's a scene where a guy is just kind of dancing and he's covered with ears and it looks kind of cool, but it's ultimately saying nothing. And there's a line, there's a line, one of the people say, yeah, the ears don't even work. Because it's like, yeah. oh, you can show this, you can make this image, but did you do the the thinking to like, why is it, why this image, why does it matter? Does it actually make sense in your story? It's saying like, it, it's commenting on like, oh, you're trying to, it's an imitation, but it's an imitation that ultimately doesn't work. And I think that is, that is uh, one of the, one of the curses of Cronenberg is that there are a lot of bad films that take him as inspiration but also one of the best things is there's absolutely fantastic films that do and it that film crimes of the future the the recent version really is his thoughts kind of on what he created while also reflecting back all of what he has already done yes and i you know, I do think it is a, an interesting film, again, echoing back to one of his first works, but not connected um, to that short, um, but is kind of a an exploration specifically of a lot of different ideas in his career from all of these different kind of pockets that we've talked about um and it's interesting to i think while it is a a, a kind of return to form in the execution and the utilization of body horror i think the way that it's um you know the way that is he the way that he uses it as specific commentary here is slightly different, and I think that that's um, you know interesting and and will be uh, fascinating to see what you know is next on the docket. Yeah, I mean, he's got one listed as being in in production or to be in the TBA on Wikipedia, The Shrouds, and I don't know much about that, but I anything anything he wants to make, I will watch. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and again, I think from or read actually, because his book we got a I should mention briefly consumed by David Cronenberg's a great novel that feels it feels like a a, a movie of his that just didn't get made, so he said, ah, here's the book, here you go. Yeah. Well, and I think specifically you have here with Crimes of the Future, there is, um, you know, obviously we're dealing with body horror, we're dealing with disease. Um, and I think you're also bringing in more of the environmental components um, and its impact you know, the environment and impact on health. 
Um, so, you know, again, I, I say, well, this is going to be one of the Cronenberg films I, I will talk about in a separate episode so I can really dig into it, but could really do that with at least 96% of Cronenberg's work. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, you know, it's, it's got the squick, it's got some gooey gooeyness surgery. Um, but I really like it. And like I said, I think it's, um, nice to see, you know, him back in that space. And it will be interesting to see where, where we go next. Um, because, you know, the man likes, likes to, uh, you know, branch out. He likes to, to stretch out. So, yeah. So that is, we, we have gone through, uh, a ton, um, and hit on a ton. Um, but you know, I'm so glad, Zach, that you were able to really, I think, guide a conversation that I feel like I've learned so much about films that I've seen, you know, tons of. Oh, I'm just glad to help. Yeah. Um, and so definitely when we venture into the land of Cronenberg, uh, again, I may come knocking at your door. Um, you got, you got my email. So anytime, anytime you want to talk Cronenberg, I'm there. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that will do us, uh, for this episode. Zach, I know that you mentioned, um, a couple of places where folks can, uh, find you, uh, at the very top, but why don't you give us a refresher? If, uh, people are wanting to reach out to you, if they're wanting to see some of your writing, um, any of that, where, where would you like to direct folks? Uh, these days, I mostly just do fiction writing on writeindarkness.ca. I also do, uh, speaking of Naked Lunch earlier, I also do a lot of uh, cut-up poetry on there as well. Uh, and like some weird blackout poetry that I share and some artworks. And all of that stuff is free. And I am on TikTok under Write in Darkness. Uh, you, you used to be able to find me on twitter and i'm still there but i never check it mm-hmm. uh I, I just got my blue sky invite so i'm right in darkness or something like that on there you can find me if you try hard enough <laughs> <laughs> excellent and all of that will be in the show notes so be sure to uh check out zach's work um you can find me on i mean twitter twixt x um at Bobby's Horror. I too have made uh the venture over to the uh the blue sky uh app so you can find me there and I will post that because I think I've I've just started uh my account there. So uh I don't I have to... two posts on mine only. Yeah. <laughs> and one of one of them was about the podcast today. Yep. Um, so yeah, I'm at Bodies of Horror over at uh, Blue Sky. And so I'll be uh, putting that in uh, the show notes. And of course, you can always reach me by email, uh, bodies, 
of whore at gmail.com to say, hey, uh, if you have, you know, films that you think would be excellent to uh, touch on, um, all of that. I've had some people reach out and share artwork that they have created um, around films that we've covered here. Um, and I was blown away. It's so cool. Um, so reach out, say, Hey, I love hearing from people. Um, yeah. So with all of that said, Zach, uh, thank you again so much. I really appreciate, uh, just the wealth of knowledge insight that you brought to, uh, uh, the topic of Cronenberg and until next time. Scream Pod Squad.